History Hump Day. It's me, Julian Rushbrook, and I'm here with another slice of queer history for you to enjoy. Now, it's the month of May, and so I wanted to do some episodes that honored Asian and Pacific Island historical figures, but I also needed to squeeze this little topic in today because of current legislation that's going on around the country. So, if your internet's been cut off, you haven't seen a newspaper, your radio's broken, uh, you're living under a rock. The country of the United States is having a real crisis when it comes to drag queens. Now, drag is an important part of the LGBTQIA community. Many of us remember going to see our first live drag performances. Others got their introduction from watching RuPaul's Drag Race. Either way, the art form has gone from just being a part of queer culture to now being embraced globally. Wait, is that right though? Is drag really something new? If you asked uh, quite a few of our Republican legislators of late, that would be their answer. But that's just not the case. At the moment, state after state in these United States is debating partial or full bans on drag performances drag stars, and by extension, trans people, because of the wording of some of these uh, bills, are the newest targets in a moral panic to sweep the country in a long line of similar moral panics. From the fear of the predatory homosexual, or the communist of the 1950s, to the terror inspired by the hippies of the 60s and 70s, on through the 1980s and the satanic panic that debuted then, the early 2000s and the fear of Islam, now today we've got a new fear. No matter how you slice it, these panics of the past have the same thing in common with the current one today. That commonality is that the fear-mongering is based on nothing. Innuendo and conspiracy are causing legislators to discriminate and invest resources into combating a paper tiger, while the real dangers to children and society at large remain absolutely free from any real scrutiny. While reports of pastors, priests, youth pastors, legislators, and television and film producers who are sexually assaulting people from infants on up to senior citizens the focus of fears at present are with trans folk and drag performers. So it seems like a good time to dip a well-manicured, sparkly polished toe into the history of drag through the ages. Drag is older than most of us imagine, and more ubiquitous than a good portion of conservative politicians across the globe would have us believe. One of the earliest examples of drag is in Plautus' play, Menaikini. I hope I pronounced that one right. The play dates to 200 years before the Common Era. 
In the play, one of the characters dresses in his wife's dress to sneak it out of the house just to give it as a gift to his mistress. It was a gimmick that was used to get a laugh from the crowd, which is something that still occurs with drag in contemporary films and theater today. The upending of gender norms, while often used as comedy, can within that allow an audience to question the rigidity of the standards in their society. Ancient Roman culture was well bifurcated, with men having lives outside of the home, but women were fairly restricted to the four walls of their home. The clothing and hairstyles that were allowed for men and women were also rigid. So seeing a performance such as this was a useful pressure valve for such a patriarchal system. If we move away from the Mediterranean and go, you know, a few thousand miles east in Japan, the traditions of kabuki theater often has men playing the parts of women. These onagata wear elaborate makeup and costumes. And this practice dates back to the 17th century. The performers were often themselves involved in prostitution, which is something you can see in a lot of uh, a lot of actors and stuff like that in the past. There was a lot of overlap. <clears throat> I'm not sure how highly in demand male prostitutes were for Japanese women of that period, but something makes me think that most of the clients of these sex workers were probably men. See, queers have been around forever. Like in Japan, England also has a history of drag in the theater scene of the 16th and 17th centuries. Shakespeare's plays initially had all of the women's parts played by younger men, as women were banned from appearing on stage until the reign of James I. Shout out to last week's subject. So, Juliet, Lady Macbeth, Ophelia, really all of the heroines of his various tragedies, histories, and comedies were all played by men in gowns and wigs. Some of his plots also had women dressing as men and vice versa, as in Twelfth Night, where Viola disguises herself as a young man, only to have another woman fall in love with her male persona. The whole time she's the servant to Duke Orsino, with whom she has fallen in love, but has to pretend that she doesn't love him because he thinks she is a man. This playing with gender was pretty common at the time. Other contemporaries of William Shakespeare likewise had their female characters portrayed by men. Later in time, drag moved more underground into molly houses, which were meeting places for gay men, but also people who we nowadays might identify as trans or non-binary. Later in the Georgian period, London would have midnight masquerades. At these events, the men would dress as witches or nurses, while women would be clad in the uniforms of soldiers. So, both groups switched. A star of that scene was Princess Serafina, or her government name, John Cooper. Despite the laws against same-sex sexual and romantic relationships, this drag performer was able to thrive, and the community was able to play around with gender. If we jump again around the world, in India, the Natya Shastra is an ancient Sanskrit treatise on dance. It was collected together from around 500 BCE-ish to around 200 of the Common Era. 
There are 36 chapters to the work that describes different styles of acting, dancing, costuming, and, and just other aspects of performance. The dance forms like Kuchipudi and Katakali were traditionally only performed by men who would perform in both feminine and masculine roles for their performances. The gender fluidity does not end with urban areas though. In rural parts of the country, a folk dance known as Londa Notch is often performed by more marginalized men while dressed in feminine attire. Another aspect of the cultures of the Indian subcontinent are the people known as the Hedra. Their existence dates back to ancient times and is even mentioned in the Kama Sutra. In the case of the Hedra, they're often eunuchs, intersex, or trans people. Or at least that's how we would identify them now. The community looks upon them as a third gender. Now, while these people are not drag performers, per se, the cultural acceptance of different forms of gender expression is proof that this is nothing new for the world's largest democracy. In pre-colonial uh, sub-Saharan Africa, in what is now Congo and Angola, there was room for different forms of gender expression. The Langi of modern-day Uganda had men who dressed and behaved in ways that we would call drag now, especially if a, a man wanted to marry another man. The Marumakadzi, or the man-woman, of the Shona societies would dress and perform tasks that were specific to women. It was believed that they were channeling female spirits, but in their cases, they would often still live in otherwise heteronormative relationships with female wives and having children. One of the recurring talking points by right-wing agitators is that men nowadays just aren't men. Harry Styles is wearing feminine clothing? Lil Nas X has on heels? Is that a backless halter top on Timothy Chalamet? It's the end. The end of mankind. We must all protect our masculinity by tanning our taints and using red light therapy on our testicles. If it were not true, this would all be laughable. It also forgets, either purposefully or simply due to ignorance, the reality of people all over the world and in all points in history. If we jump back to the UK, pantomimes have been performed for centuries, with their origin dating back to the 16th century. Now, pantomimes, or pantos, are not quite the same thing as American pantomimes, which are just mimes. These performances have always been family affairs, with the performers often switching genders uh, of the different parts. A young boy is often played by a woman, while an older woman is typically portrayed by a middle-aged man. And the affairs are pretty bawdy. There are on-stage fights and double entendres with innuendos that shoot right over the heads of the children in the audience, but they definitely land a few chuckles with all of the adults in attendance. Typically, the stories are based on fairy tales, and these have become a beloved aspect of the Christmas and New Year season. The slapstick humor and audience participation in many ways is similar to how you would see audience 
participation when people go to uh, performances of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. In a sense, we might even call it a modern-day panto. And now, if we go to the United States, we can see that drag has a long history as well. In fact, one of the earliest documented drag queens was William Dorsey Swan. He, as a former slave, was freed with the end of the Civil War. And he called himself the Queen of Drag and would throw drag balls. Often, the attendees were themselves former slaves. And it's thought that this is where the term drag queen comes from, because he would be wearing these gowns and they would drag across the, uh, the, uh, the ground. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like the story anyway. The men that were in attendance would be dressed in gowns of satin and silk and perform the cakewalk. Cakewalks date to enslavement times, when the slaves would dance and perform exaggerated mannerisms that mimicked and poked fun at their masters. These drag balls are reminiscent of ball culture that would grow up in Harlem in the 1960s through to the 90s and into the present day. The cakewalk would be quite similar to voguing and may even be a precursor. Swan even referred to the group of former enslaved drag performers collectively as the House of Swan. In another way, William Dorsey Swan would resemble LGBTQIA activists a century later who would seek uh, legal recourse to allow for queer people to gather. Uh, in 1888, he became the first person in American history to be charged with female impersonation. Sadly, he would be convicted and sentenced to 10 months in jail for quote-unquote keeping a disorderly house. Basically, it was a euphemism for running a brothel. Much like the Stonewall Uprising, it was a black drag queen and it was trans women, even back then, who were fighting for the rights that we now enjoy. In the early years of the 20th century, drag was an important part of vaudeville acts and minstrel performances. Now, minstrel shows were racist acts that had white people, and sometimes even some black folks, painted in exaggerated blackface and making jokes that leaned heavily into stereotypes of black people as being dim-witted, lazy, or clownish. Vaudeville acts similarly were comic performances that were similar to variety shows. It would be nothing to see men dressed in feminine attire or women dressed in masculine clothing in either of these types of performance. Interestingly, society did not crumble into ashes from a few men wearing grease paint and skirts. Julian Elting was one of the drag performers who delved into minstrel shows and vaudeville. While he unfortunately did perform from time to time in blackface, uh, most performances were not, and for his part he did, did not perform in drag as comedy, instead performing as a woman, only to snatch off the wig at the end of the performance to the shock and awe of his audience. At one time he was the world's highest paid actor. Broadway and later Hollywood would inherit drag as part of the dramatic and comedic toolkits used to entertain the masses. 
films with stars like Jack Lemmon, Katherine Hepburn, and Ronald Reagan, yes, that Ronald Reagan, would be seen on silver screens from sea to shining sea. During the World Wars, the troops would perform in drag for each other, or have performances put on for them with actors performing in drag. A woman in slacks with a painted-on five o'clock shadow, or a man with lipstick and a flowery bonnet were all part of the show. No moral panic ensued, and in fact, the side that beat the Nazis in the Second World War were often entertained by drag, unlike the Nazis. With the dawn of television, drag acts now could be enjoyed from the comfort of your post-war, mid-century modern living room. A nuclear family living in the suburbs could tune in to Milton Berle in Pearls and Wig. Even Lucille Ball would don masculine attire once or twice. If we jump back across the pond, in Britain, Benny Hill would perform in drag. The legendary comedy group Monty Python had quite a few moments where drag was integral to the plot. In Australia, Dame Edna Everidge, a character created by and for Barry Humphreys, who recently died, was on the screens in Australia and all over the world for decades. While Barry Humphreys has made transphobic comments in the past, it is undeniable that his drag career did open doors for future drag performers, whether he approved of their life choices or not. As the LGBTQIA equality movement started to get traction under its wheels in the early 1970s, drag was there. It is in these queer spaces that the crucible of culture seemed to reside. Madonna may have made ball culture mainstream, but it was the drag performers in Harlem that created that culture. From voguing and duck walking, the world would forever be changed. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, a drag game changer would strut onto the scene. Harris Glenn Milstead would take on the moniker Divine. His performances were intentionally countercultural. His longtime friend John Waters would collaborate with the drag queen, and Divine would appear in several films, from Pink Flamingos to Female Trouble and Hairspray. The role that he played in Hairspray, Edna Turnblad, is now always played by a man to honor him. He would later become a disco singer, moving from film to the dance floor. Documentaries such as The Queen and Paris is Burning would reveal to the world the underground drag balls that gathered in pseudo-secrecy to indulge in glamour and artistic prowess. The two films are actually connected, as one of the subjects of the first, The Queen, which was released in 1968, would feature Crystal LaBeja, who would go on to form The House of LaBeja that would feature prominently in Paris's Burning. LaBeja, along with other queens of color, would step away from the drag balls that were dominated by white queens and formed the ball culture that would be seen in Paris's burning. The balls were a safe space for black and brown queer folks to meet, compete, and form chosen families. The award-winning television show Pose takes place in this era. 
as the 20th century became the 21st, I think it's obvious to everyone that RuPaul Charles would be the most famous drag queen on the planet. While his career dated back to the 1980s, his fame would grow more with each decade until he brought drag as an art form into the living rooms of first the United States and then later the world. Drag Race pulled back the curtain on these performers. They were now visible to the world both in and out of costume. The work and talent that's required to perform the feats were now on display and the culture developed a better appreciation for something that had, until that point, been an art form enjoyed by another community, you know, over there. In countries all over the world, Drag Race is planting its flag. Britain, Canada, Australia, Brazil, among others, are seeing versions of Drag Race or similar types of programming come into being. Drag is even a part of other uh, forms of entertainment. In 2014, the winner of the European singing competition, Eurovision, Conchita Wurst, is a drag performer. In the 1990s through to the present, drag returned to films, but less for humor and more with the performers themselves being central to the story. While Mrs. Doubtfire came during this time, it in many ways has been eclipsed by Priscilla Queen of the Desert, or Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Drag queens, while, or drag kings, I'm sorry, while a smaller group of drag performers are still present and with each passing year becoming more mainstream. Drag is no longer just for queer men, as straight men and women have been dabbling in makeup and wigs and sequins after having mostly abandoned doing drag with the beginning of the disco era. A drag queen, or at least a former one, sits in the United States House of Representatives. Although, for a while he would deny it, Representative George Santos of New York has a lot of photographic evidence that reveals that even a congressman can do drag. Now, if only they would be honest about it. For that matter, if only Santos would be honest about literally anything. But I digress. Now, a drag queen will be appearing in the upcoming season of Doctor Who, with Jinx Monsoon having a prominent role for the upcoming season. With that announcement, drag has now made it into outer space. And if I'm still making this podcast in a few decades, I might just be able to get an interview with the first drag superstar of Mars. So let's keep our fingers crossed on that. Well, I talked about a lot today. <laughs> Each personality and subject could be an episode unto themselves. But I just wanted to take a small but broad look at the subject of drag and sort of gender nonconformity. With all of this moral panic at the moment, I think it's probably a good idea for everyone to look in to a bit of the actual history of drag and other kind of gender-fluid ways of being. And that's why we have to contact our representatives to let them know that drag is not the enemy and to focus on fixing actual problems. Likewise, we need to vote every time. Even if we can't elect the perfect candidate, we can always go for the better one. 
All right, time for me to close this down. I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode. If you did, rate me on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can drop us a message at historymostqueer at gmail.com and come check out the Instagram page at historymostqueer. I would love to hear from you. Enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll catch you on the next History Hump Day. Woo! <laughs>